you would please stand. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, found on page 952 in the Blue Pew Bible, or wherever you're reading your Bible from, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be pleased now to send your Holy Spirit upon us, the same spirit that moved your servant Paul to write these words, may that same spirit give us ears and hearts wide open to your word. For Jesus' sake, Father, amen. Amen. Please be seated. This Lent, we're looking at five challenges in the life of the church. You'll see it in the cover of the bulletin. Five challenges in church life. And this morning, we're looking at the challenge of experiencing division. Uh, We've all heard the old joke about the Christian who was stranded by himself on a desert island. Uh, Years later, when rescuers found him, they noticed that there were three three structures on the island. What's this, they asked him, pointing to the first structure. That's my house, the man said. And what's this, they asked, pointing to the second structure. Uh, That's my church, he said. So what's that, they asked, pointing at the third structure. And he said, oh, that's the church that I used to go to. Um... (laughs) No doubt you've heard that joke. It's, it's funny, or it was funny the first time you heard it, 
precisely because we all know it's true. There is truth in that. And at some moments it can make us chuckle. At other moments it can bring us tears. Um, Division in church life, experiencing division, is a painful reality. Uh, Will Grover pointed out to me that uh, this month's table talk for March uh, is on church conflict. The whole issue is on church conflict. I, I very highly commend it to you. Not only is table talk a great day-by-day devotional guide that you can read in your private devotional time, but it also has some fabulous articles uh, in the center of the magazine specifically around this topic of church conflict. And I I very highly recommend this issue and uh, this particular topic for your study. Um, Virtually every person in this room has at one time or another, to some degree or another, experienced division, the reality of division, conflict. Will mentioned last week a few examples from uh, the church history here at Metrocrest and the church history at Christ Church Carrollton, for those who came from uh, Christ Church. Uh, We all know about the reality, the sad, painful reality of division in the life of the church. Of course, this reality is nothing new. Uh, This reality is something that stretches all the way back uh, to the very beginning of the church. Uh, In fact, if you uh, read the book of Acts, we did a series on the book of Acts not long ago. If you read the book of Acts, you will find many examples of churches and Christians arguing and fussing and fighting and disagreeing and dividing. It's It's a painful reality. Uh, something that we are all too familiar with, both in church history and in our own personal life. So I don't have to convince you of its reality, but I I do want you to notice that the passage we're looking at today, I think, has some very helpful wisdom for us. How to deal with the reality of division, how to deal with the reality of conflict, disagreements, things that divide us. Uh, This whole book, as a matter of fact, is kind of written to address conflict in the church, disunity, division in the church. It's the church in Corinth. And Corinth could, in a way, be the poster child for this issue, the poster child for church division. And uh, we know he's writing to Corinth. He makes it very plain. Verse uh, 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Uh, Sosthenes is a character who shows up from the book of Acts from Corinth. We're not 100% sure it's the same Sosthenes. I guess it was a common name. But it seems not unlikely that the Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians is the Sosthenes that's mentioned in the book of Acts in Corinth, someone that had a role to play in the founding of the church there in Corinth. He was a leader of the synagogue and was mentioned among the people who were with Paul. Anyway, Paul and this Sosthenes, whom he calls a brother, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So uh, Paul is singling out Corinth. What a way to be remembered in church history. Uh, Here's this brilliant church, so much going for it, a role to play in church history. And yet the thing that's going to stand out to us as we look at the rest of what Paul has to say in this letter is the reality of conflict and division. Uh, Notice what Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth. He says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, helpful to remember, Paul is not a flatterer. Uh, Paul is not someone who's trying to curry favor. Uh, He's actually going to be writing some very difficult things. He's writing truth. He's a straight shooter here and elsewhere. Uh, So it's very significant that Paul writes to this church in this way. Speaking to the church there in Corinth, he says that you have been sanctified. You have been called. And they, like all Christians everywhere, uh, are able to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And he extends the apostolic blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to give this very beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to a church that he esteems. He's writing to a church that he regards very highly. He knows them well. He had helped plant this church. He knows them well, and he knows what they know. And he knows that they are Christians. You know, every once in a while, uh, we can dismiss things we read in the Bible because it must apply to the non-Christians or the, the phony Christians who are in the crowd. And there are certainly places where we get a glimpse of phony Christians in the crowd. That's not something unfamiliar to Paul. But here, it feels as though at the very beginning of the letter, Paul is actually writing to the Christians in the church. It's really helpful for you and me to understand that as followers of Jesus, we are not immune to disunity, we're not immune to conflict, and we're not immune to the prospect of division. It is possible for people who know Jesus, who love Jesus, to stumble, to lose our way, to become confused, to be disoriented, or in any other way, not to heed Christ's call to us. So what Paul has to say here is not just a word to phony Christians or or Christians who aren't real. Uh, These are words that Paul writes to people whom, in verse 10, he calls brothers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. These brothers are the folks to whom Paul addresses his letter and to whom he makes his opening appeal. The opening of his letter is an appeal to them. So if you're a member of the church, if you've known the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, if, like me, you understand yourself to be Paul's brother in Christ, then what he is going to say in this section applies very much to you and to me. So what were the things the Corinthian Christians were experiencing division over? Well, it's interesting. Uh, we know that Paul had received several reports. If you uh, look at uh, verse 11, Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. This person, Chloe, only shows up here in this passage. It's a feminine name, a female. Uh, She had some people. I read a number of articles this week speculating who who are the people, what were their relationships to Chloe? Who was Chloe? What was her relationship to Paul? 
the most convincing article I read suggested that Chloe was probably the hostess to one of the house churches there in uh, Corinth. Uh, She was a woman who Paul apparently knew. He knew her name, and he knew her well enough to receive this report from the people around her. Maybe they were her servants, uh, people who had house churches, were sometimes wealthy people. It could well be that Chloe's people were the servants. Uh, She had enough, whatever the basis of the relationship, uh, she had enough for them to come to bring this report to Paul. And Paul knew and respected her enough to receive the report. So in chapter 5, verse 1a, if you flip over a page, you'll see it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Chloe's people had brought a report, among other things, that there was sexual immorality defiling the church, he says. In chapter 6, he makes reference to lawsuits against believers. This had arrived in this report uh, that, that had been shared with the Apostle Paul. So there was a report from Chloe's people. Uh, there was also, second, a letter apparently from the church itself. The, the church had sent Paul a letter. So what he's doing here is responding not only to Chloe's report, but to report that he'd received in the form of a letter that had been written to him from the church. So if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Uh, so there, there are a couple of reports going on here that Paul is responding to. In chapter 7, he talks about marriage. Apparently there was discussion, disagreement around marriage. Chapters 8 through 10, there's a lengthy discussion about food offered to idols, which was often something Jewish background believers disagreed with Gentile background believers. Uh, there was a discussion, a disagreement, conflict, and potentially division about food offered to idols. In chapter 11, it turns out there was a disagreement about the role of women. Interestingly, uh, Chloe, who is perhaps the hostess of a house church, uh, and then others in the church, there was a disagreement about the role of women. Uh, in chapter 11, Also, there's a disagreement about the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul actually says, sometimes when you gather for the Lord's Supper, he says to the church there in Corinth, when you gather, you display these divisions. So maybe they were sitting in little groups. They didn't all come together and share fellowship together. They sat with their little group. That's an awful thought to think of, to gather at the Lord's Supper and, and yet to give physical representation to the disunity around the supper but that was one of the topics apparently that had come up in the reports he'd received Uh, in chapters 12 through 14 there's a disagreement about spiritual gifts and specifically tongues my goodness uh, that doesn't surprise me that that is often a topic that divides Christians Uh, Paul deals with this topic of disagreement in chapter 15 he discusses the resurrection The resurrection of Jesus was apparently something about which there was disagreement. There was disunity and potentially division in the church in Corinth about something as important and central and what we might say as basic as the resurrection. And so Paul is writing this letter to deal with that potential division. In chapter 16, he concludes this particular section by talking about the collection for the church in Jerusalem. As is often the case, money became a topic of disagreement. 
Do we really trust this? Is the church in Jerusalem the place where we should be sending our money? What about the other needs that we might have? What about other things that we'd like to do? And there's this disagreement around trust and, and priority. So there's, there's all this stuff that has been reported to Paul, and that's what he's writing this letter to respond to. And that's something, just to think in this gifted, wonderful church that Paul knew and loved so much that there was so much disagreement on so many important topics. A wide range of issues. So flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All of that is going to be this disagreement, the disunity, the sources of division that Paul is going to talk about. But here at the beginning, at the very opening, he describes it in different terms. He describes it in very different terms. Not so much about the topics that they disagree about, but something even more underlying, even more basic. Look at verses 11 to 13. Paul writes, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Verse 12, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another word where we get for, for Peter, or I follow Christ. That was a clever one. Uh, they just sort of inserted Christ's name as one of the party labels. Uh, that's an ingenious move. This is the party of Christ. Well, the way Paul describes it, you get the clear indication it was not a party really centered on Christ. It was a party centered on someone's interpretation of Christ uh, around which they had gathered yet another group potentially dividing the church. You see, what is actually at the core of this disunity is, I guess you could say, authority. Um, there were those who, who were really impressed by by Paul. I mean, that must have been flattering to Paul to hear there's the party, the Paul group, and they're most impressed by Paul. And then there's another group that was really impressed by Apollos, who, as we know from other places, uh, quite an articulate spokesman for the gospel. There were those who said, I follow Cephas. He's my authority. Peter, the prince of the apostles, the, the uh, the apostle that figures so prominently in the gospel accounts themselves. I follow Peter. And of course this fourth group uh, where they ingeniously uh, take Christ's own title and make it the name of, a, of another partisan group. You see the idea, it's, it's an argument about authority. And what they're doing is they're dividing all these authorities. So Paul says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Can there really be a, a Christ party over against a Paul party, a Peter party, and, a, and an Apollos party? Is Christ divided? Is that going to be the way of the, the life of the church as we gather around our authorities whom we recognize as having some sort of unique role to play? Paul goes on, he says, not only was Christ divided, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Well, that's, that's an interesting rhetorical question, the resounding answer to which is no, of course not. That was only Jesus who was crucified for his people. 
Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I guess there were some who, uh, when they performed a baptism, uh, they saw it as adding, some group of them saw it as adding to their little party. You were baptized, and whoever did the baptism or whichever group was responsible for the baptism, you were somehow identified with that little section, that little division within the life of the church. And so it's easy to picture that when they get together for the Lord's Supper, you kind of sit with your little group, right? Here are the people that Peter had something to do with their being baptized. Maybe someone he baptized, baptized them. Or over here is Apollos. Over here is Peter and Paul. Over here is is the Christ group, whoever was in charge of that little division. And you get this picture of a very very divided community that is centered not on the gospel, but on these authorities, these, these power authorities. And that's what Paul sort of, how he boils down all this disagreement, all these issues. In a way, it boils down to these authorities. Who are we going to listen to? What is the basis for our relationship with one another? Is it our uh, sticking with the party line on some particular issue or you know, being participating in, in some line of sacramental ministry and that somehow is going to define us? Well, it's remarkably timely. Uh, what Paul writes to the church in Corinth is sadly very true today. We, all too often in the life of the church, one of the most challenging things we face is this idea of, of authority and, and who are we recognizing as our authority? Who do we look to? Who is actually the center of our life together. Let me tell you, it is a very, very dangerous thing. If anyone, if anyone is at the center of our life together other than Jesus. Only Jesus can be at the center of our life together. And Paul, who was one of the parties, knew that. No doubt so did Cephas, and no doubt so did Apollos. Or they would come to see it. The center of our life is not some theological school. The center of our life together is Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to go on to say a lot about that in the remainder of chapter 1. He talks about Christ, the wisdom, the power of God. It's not Apollos and his eloquence and great skill as a speaker it's Jesus and him crucified that is the center the ultimate authority for our life together that's the center of the church Um, this morning at 9 a.m we had another membership commission here at the church I'm very happy to let you guys know. Brian Ray. Where's Brian? I saw Brian. Yeah, there's Brian. Our newest member at MetroCrest Presbyterian Church, Brian Ray, was examined and approved for membership by two of our ruling elders here at the church. And uh, let me tell you, what they talked about uh, was not about Presbyterianism primarily. Uh, what they talked about was Jesus. The basis for membership in our church, the basis for membership in our church is not our Presbyterianism. We love our Presbyterianism. 
We rejoice in our Presbyterianism, but the center of our life together, the basis for our unity is not Presbyterianism. And the founders of Presbyterianism know that. The center of our life is Christ. And so what they talk primarily to Brian about and what we talk to every new member about at MetroCrest are our five vows. We have five vows. Every single member of the Presbyterian Church in America has talked about these five vows. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church? That is the basis for membership in our church and may it always be so. The basis of membership in our church, the basis of membership in the church of Jesus Christ is not our Presbyterianism as much as we love our Presbyterianism. What makes us one, what gives us life, what gives us joy and hope, the God whom we worship calls us into fellowship with him. And we bring our understanding and our limited understanding with us. We, we bring our history and our stories and, and the mistakes we've made. We bring all that with us. But the center of our life is Jesus. In fact, the way Paul puts it is very interesting. He says, uh, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I love the Westminster Confession, but the Westminster Confession does not save us. The shorter catechism, as much as I love it, does not save us. Now, what saves us is Jesus, his person and his work. Now, that's what he's going to go on to describe in the remainders of chapter 1 and, and all of chapter 2. Uh, proclaiming Christ crucified, the person and work of Jesus. He is the center of our life. He is where we put our emphasis. He is what we proclaim person and work of Christ and it's interesting the person of course Paul begins by talking about Christ count the number of times in this opening section count the number of times that Paul talks about Jesus Christ I mean it's really striking over and over again almost every sentence is about Christ Jesus Jesus Christ Christ Jesus Jesus Christ Over and over again, Paul pulls, drags our attention onto the person of Jesus. He is the center of our life. And then specifically, he talks about the the, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. We can't separate the person of Jesus from the work of Jesus. The Jesus whom we are centered on is the Jesus who died for us. The Jesus who emptied himself. The Jesus who humbled himself and calls us to humble ourselves. You see, the center of Christianity, as Paul understood it, is the cross. 
Not because the resurrection is insignificant, not because the ascension is insignificant. They're essential parts of what Christ has done. They're essential parts of his work. But it's the cross, the self-emptying, the humbling that we need to be reminded of again and again and again and again. We need to understand that it is the Christ who died, who humbled himself on the cross to whom we look and hope and trust It is that Christ whom we proclaim. And so Paul drags the church's attention to this crucified Savior. He is the center of our life. And when we get that through our thick heads, when we begin to really grasp that Jesus emptied himself and Jesus died for those who were his enemies, That Jesus is the middle of our life. That shapes everything else about us. Right? If the crucified Christ who emptied himself is at the middle of our life together, where is there place for arrogance? Where is the place for lording over one another? Where is the place for rigid hierarchies and, and, and ways of understanding power structures? How does that fit? into a faith that's centered on one who died humbling himself, it doesn't. It doesn't. So Paul drags us from our divisions, from our disunity, to centeredness on Christ. Now that doesn't mean that the other things aren't important. Please don't hear me saying that the other things aren't important. In fact, they're very, very important. But our dealing with them will be shaped by the Unique way, Christ fulfilled his ministry. See, power structures and forcing things on other people has no place in the life of the church. You know, there are other religions where that's, that's kind of the MO. Uh, that's what you do. You force people. Well, to the extent Christianity ever tried that, it was a terrible failure. It's not, it's not the way Christ's gospel is proclaimed. The way Christ's gospel is proclaimed is in love. It is in love. As Jesus showed love for us, so we show love for the world around us. There's a great uh, expression. uh, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Beautiful words uh, written by a German Lutheran theologian in German, Rupertus Meldinius, and those words were captured and used by the great Puritan Richard Baxter, who that became his personal motto. And then those same lines, I think today are the motto for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, our sister denomination with whom we share so much. That's their actual motto, the center of their understanding of their life together. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. See, that, that shapes the way we deal with our disagreements. Um, I mentioned this little booklet. One of the best articles in here was written by Fred Greco. Some of you know Fred Greco. There is no stronger advocate for Reformed theology than Fred Greco. And in it, in this article that he's written on how to deal with church conflict, I commend the whole article to you. Take a look at it. It's in the, the March issue of Table Talk. In it, he describes the way Christians deal 
with theological disagreement. See, we, we don't deny their theological issues that we disagree with. We don't deny that they matter. We don't deny that there are answers. We believe there are answers. But we approach them with humility. We approach them with unity, with mutual respect. We approach them recognizing that other people have opinions and brains and experiences in life. And, and so we, we engage them together. And Greco writes very movingly about how we've tried to do that at times in the PCA. Very imperfectly, very, very imperfectly. But I've got to say, one of the things I love most about the Presbyterian Church in America is the determination that we will tackle these issues together. We will work them through together. We will come together humbly around these issues that we need to talk about, centered on Jesus Christ. Not centered on our tradition, not centered on our distinctives as much as we love them, but centered on Jesus, his sovereign word, his person, his work. He is the center. And while we've done it imperfectly, it has pleased me to no end, and infinitely more, more importantly, I believe it pleases our Father. It pleases our Father in heaven when sinners like us seek to work out our differences in Christ. Well, there's so many challenges in church life, but, you know, honestly, I think this tendency to, to divide and to... to choose parties around authority and personalities, uh, preaching styles, preaching giftedness. It's very easy to fall into that trap of defining ourselves by these peripheral things rather than, as Paul says, focusing on Christ and him crucified. My goal, I want to tell you right now, and I, I believe your session's goal, is that we keep the cross of Jesus Christ at the center of our life together. And if you ever see us deviating from that, if you ever see us putting something in the place of Jesus, however attractive it may be, call us on it. Now may this church always be centered on Christ and him crucified. In just a moment, we're going to gather around a table, this very humble table up here. You know, the, uh, the table that we're going to gather around in the truest sense does not belong to Metrocrest. It does not belong to the PCA. This table, because we've given it to him, because he gave it to us, this table belongs to Jesus. And if you know and love Jesus, if you are in communion with him and his church, whether you're Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist or Pentecostal or Episcopalian, doesn't matter to us. If you know and love Jesus, you are in communion with his church, then you are invited to his table. We want to invite you to gather at his table with us. That's what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. It's to be this visual representation of our unity in him. And you're invited. You're invited to come forward. Our little ones are invited to come forward. We, we don't share the bread and wine with our little ones yet until they're able to profess their faith in Christ. But they're invited to come up. We will pray for them. We will show Christ's love to them as we show it to one another. 
Well, there are so many challenges we face. But we face all of it with Christ, who is with us.